0: Hello, and welcome to episode five of A Dose of True Crime, the podcast with a penchant for poison. I'm your host and resident toxicologist, Erin. Thank you for tuning in to a new episode. My episode release schedule has been a little all over the place while I got my bearings in podcast land. But moving forward, I will be publishing on Tuesday mornings. So that means survive Monday, survive the first day of the week, and then bright and early Tuesday morning, you can check your feed for a brand new episode from hopefully your new favorite podcast. Okay. So let's get into this week's story. Linda Lee Kilgore, or I've also seen Kincaid. It's a little confusing. Seems like she's got two last names. Um, anyways, Linda was a self-made woman born in 1944. She was born and raised in California. She started work as an entry-level employee at Southern California Edison, which is the local electric utility provider. There she met her best friend, Mary Siebold. They worked their way up the rungs at the company with Linda eventually working in management at Southern California Edison's San Onofre nuclear generating plant. Linda was known to be very fashionable, always with the next new style and always matching her shoes to her handbag. Linda was a wonderful, funny, accomplished woman who was interested in dating, but never really in marriage. She dated Bill Sandretto, a local life insurance salesman on and off for about eight years. Although Linda earned a substantial wage, friends noted that she spent money faster than she earned it, investing in big ticket items like a new car, a fancy Rolex watch, and a large spacious home. In March of 1989, Linda's company was hiring contractors to work with the nuclear plants engineers. Training on proper procedure and safety issues would be handled by this contractor. The man they hired was named Paul Curry. Paul had a wealth of experience with this type of work and was reputed to be very intelligent. He had previously won Jeopardy and was a member of Mensa, which is an exclusive society that grants admission based on an individual's IQ. He had a reputation of being quite the charmer and the life of the party. No wonder then when he and Linda began dating. By all accounts, Linda and Paul were an adorable and sometimes sickening couple, frequently being heard talking to each other in baby voices. In September of 1992, the two traveled to Las Vegas, Nevada to tie the knot. At the time, Paul was 35 and Linda was 48. About a month into their marriage, Paul had a request for Linda. He asked her to put her 401k in his name. Then the request was for her mortgage to be in his name. That's right. The mortgage she had secured on her own for her own house. Then he asked her to apply for a $1 million life insurance policy. Linda was suspicious. She confided in her best friend, Mary. Mary was also uncomfortable with the numerous asks and started keeping a close eye on the couple and specifically paul another friend of linda frankie thurber was house hunting at the time and was between homes linda saw an opportunity she offered frankie a room to stay in and asked that she keep tabs on paul while she was staying frankie obliged also harboring concerns for her friend linda during this time frankie witnessed paul being a very caring and sweet husband cooking for Linda and preparing bubble baths for her. He also had fun making new and unique salad dressings that he would serve to Linda with dinner. Soon after Frankie moved out, Linda answered a phone call. On the other end of the line was another woman asking for Paul. With Paul unavailable, Linda offered to take a message. The woman said she was calling after the child support that Paul owed. Child support. Linda knew nothing of this. As far as she knew, Paul was never married before and had no children. When Paul got home, Linda confronted him about the unusual phone call, and he confessed to his past. The woman was Paul's ex-wife, asking about the money he owed for his three children. Understandably, Linda was floored and angry. Paul apologized profusely and bought Linda a three-day cruise as an apology present. The cruise took place in the summer in 1993 and hosted a virus that made several passengers sick, so not the luxurious relaxing cruise that everyone was hoping for. Linda, however, really struggled to recover. They returned home to San Clemente, California, and Paul took Linda to the Samaritan Hospital. She would go on to stay in the hospital for 21 days, suffering a stroke and hovering near death for quite a while. Doctors were baffled by what was making her sick though. The virus reported on the cruise wasn't to blame and her blood work was clean. What was killing Linda? During her stay, Linda's nurse responded to an IV alarm sounding in her room. The nurse evaluated the IV bag and noted that it was cloudy. When it should have been clear, Linda had been receiving IV fluids. The nurse prepared a new IV and replaced the cloudy one and the cloudy one was sent for testing. Linda was eventually released and sent home to recover 25 pounds lighter and extremely weak. Once home testing revealed that Linda's IV bag contained lidocaine, which Linda had not been prescribed as Linda had already been discharged. These results never really went anywhere. In December of that year of 1993, right as the year was ending, Linda fell ill again. She suffered extreme gastrointestinal issues, including vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, all sorts of things. This time, Paul took her to Mission Viejo Hospital, where she was admitted again. Linda was hooked up to IV fluids to help her recover from whatever was plaguing her. This was just another red flag in a long list of red flags to Linda and to all of her friends. Together, she and Paul made about $140K annually. Uh, In 2023 dollars, that would be about $300,000. In the last year, Linda had begun noticing that her accounts were less and less, and she couldn't really see a valid reason why Paul had continued to request things to be put in his name and asked for additional life insurance policies, which Linda was not agreeing to. Linda had confided in her friend, Mary, all about her concerns. Mary expressed worry and wanted to know why Linda was staying with Paul. Linda had told her that the marriage with Paul was passionless. It was more like friends and roommates. There was no physical marital relationship. Linda assumed that he just wasn't interested in her like that since she was 13 years older than him. While Linda was in the hospital that second time, Mary went to, quote, house-sit for Paul and Linda. On Paul's dresser, she found financial papers and life insurance policies. Just sitting there, not filed or organized. And she was immediately suspicious. Did Linda get these out? Did Paul get them out so he could be ready for Linda's demise? Is this just where they keep these documents? Mary knew that the marriage was unbalanced. Linda was her own woman with her own home, car, jewelry, furs, etc. And Paul came into the marriage with nothing and seemed to be very sneaky. Linda had even commented to Mary about how Paul was dishonest when it came to finances. All of these little things were piling up in Mary's head and she planned to talk to Linda and convince her to leave when she was discharged from the hospital. She felt that Linda was in danger. In Mission Viejo Hospital, an almost identical issue happened with Linda's IV. The alarm sounded and the nurse found a cloudy IV bag that should have been clear. She also noted what appeared to be a needle puncture. The nurse alerted authorities immediately. The Orange County Sheriff's department arrived on the scene and began interviews, including Linda at her bedside. The police asked Linda if she knew of anyone that would want to hurt her. Linda replied, quote, well, the only person I can think of that would have a motive to do it would be Paul. I just don't want to believe and think that he would do that. He seems like a very good husband End quote. With suspicion mounting on Paul, law enforcement even placed a sign on Linda's hospital door that Paul was not to enter unaccompanied. Before any investigative work was really completed, Linda was discharged and returned home with Paul. Mary asked Linda about the financial documents and life insurance paperwork that was out on Paul's dresser. And Linda responded that she had not gotten them out and that something was indeed off. In the conversation with Mary, Linda stated that she knew she was in trouble and had to get out of the house and away from Paul. Linda took the night to pack. The next day, Linda had done a complete 180. She said she can't leave and that she loves Paul and that he wouldn't hurt her. Bill Sandretto, Linda's ex of about eight years, even contacted her to ask her to leave Paul and get out of her and get out of that house for her own safety. Time passed and Linda did not leave heading into the summer. Linda became unsteady on her feet and seemed to constantly be in a daze and generally unwell on June 9th, 1994, Mary received a strange email from Paul. Paul had never emailed Mary before Paul's email with the subject, a favor, please, uh, begged Mary to reason with Linda about her work schedule. He claimed that Linda was, quote, weaving when she walked and appeared drunk. She had a doctor's appointment at the end of the week, and Paul blamed her work schedule for her illness. He claimed that her 12 hour plus workdays were causing her stress and that was impacting her well being. He asked that Mary try and, quote, talk some sense into Linda and get her to lay down and relax. Later that night, after an evening home alone together, Paul and Linda went to bed. Paul woke up to Linda not breathing. Claiming a family pet woke him up, he rolled over and noted that Linda was still and pulseless. He called emergency services and attempted CPR to no avail. She was rushed to Samaritan Hospital and pronounced dead on arrival. Paul was a grieving husband with neighbors consoling him in the aftermath of Linda's death. An autopsy was performed And toxicology reports indicated three compounds in her system. Zolpidum, cadmium, and nicotine. Zolpidum is sold under the brand name Ambien and it's used as a sleep medication. Cadmium is a heavy metal and can cause toxicity. And then nicotine is the addictive compound in tobacco, um, and like cigarettes. Linda had extremely high levels of nicotine in her body, like 50 to a hundred times more nicotine than the toxic threshold. Linda's death was declared a homicide with that information. And yet Paul was never really arrested. Instead, he attempted to collect on Linda's life insurance policies. Linda being suspicious of Paul had handwritten a note declaring that her sister Patricia would receive half of her estate upon her death, leaving Paul with the other half. Paul discovered this after the fact and was enraged. In all, Paul received $424,538.75 from Linda. The rest went to Patricia along with Linda's jewelry, including a Rolex wristwatch. Paul would go on to file claims against Patricia in an attempt to get the other half of Linda's estate. He also filed insurance claims for stolen pieces of Linda's jewelry, namely one Rolex wristwatch, which he would end up receiving $9,108 for. While settling from Linda's death, Paul's workplace, Southern California Edison, performed a security check and discovered something interesting. Paul Curry, the contractor that they hired to train the nuclear engineers on safety, did not actually have the college degree listed on his resume. He did not have any college degree as a matter of fact. When confronted with this information, Paul resigned and the whole case went essentially cold. Eight years later, Sergeant Yvonne Scholl, a part of the Orange County Sheriff's Department, took another look at the file on the death of Linda Curry. She dug in and was able to locate Paul Curry working as a building code inspector for the city of Salina, Kansas. Who wants to guess if he had the credentials for that job? He was remarried and had a child. Sergeant Shull also found information about his fake degree that he used at the nuclear plant and traced his history through several other nuclear plant power plants prior to meeting Linda. She also uncovered Paul's two ex-wives, uh, not just one, but two. Sergeant Schull spoke with Leslie Curry, Paul's second ex-wife, and Leslie recounted being sick a lot when married to Paul. He had asked her to apply for several life insurance policies and when she was denied, Paul initiated a divorce. Leslie's illness cleared up soon after that. Leslie was denied her life insurance because she claimed to be a non-smoker, yet her tests were positive for nicotine. See a trend here? Sergeant Scholl's investigation pulled on several resources, including Dr. Neil Benowitz, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He is a renowned nicotine expert and reviewed Linda's autopsy findings back in 1994, he determined Linda's cause of death was pulmonary edema and intoxication from quote catastrophic levels of nicotine. As nicotine does not build up in the body over time, the only way to really get a level that high in the blood was through a single intravenous injection. He stated that Linda likely died within 20 to 30 minutes of the injection. He also noted the toxic levels of Zolpidem in Linda's system. Again, that was the sleeping medication. With this information, Sergeant Shull assembled an idea of what had possibly happened the night of June 9th, 1994. Paul allegedly drugged Linda with Zolpidem and once she was asleep, in he injected 19, a lethal amount of nicotine into wrong. Linda's body. After the initial autopsy recorded a Ida, hematoma or a, a bruise who also, who behind her ear bad. that was consistent the with one a wound caused Blindy by a needle cool puncture. Love. With all this information, Sergeant Shull took a road trip to Kansas. Sergeant Shull had decided to play to Paul's vanity and asked the local police in Kansas to assist She asked the Selena PD to bring Paul in to quote, close up a few loose ends on this case from California. Paul, believing that he was speaking with local PD who knew nothing of the death of Linda, really took it upon himself to mansplain the facts to Sergeant Shull. She did not introduce her part as an Orange County investigator and just let him believe she was part of the local PD. She intended to let him talk and think he was the smartest person in the room, knowing that he would back himself into a corner eventually. She asked him about the night of June ninth, 1994 and asked what happened. Paul described it saying he found Linda not breathing. Sergeant Shull asked if he saw anyone else in the house. Paul confirmed that no, no one else was there. He confirmed a six hour window where only he and Linda were in the house. Sergeant Shull confirmed. So just you and Linda, Paul confirmed no one else, right? No one else. Sergeant Scholl knew this was exactly what she needed. If no one else was in the house, that means Paul was the only person around to inject Linda with the nicotine. Paul just kept talking to show just how smart he was before finally learning the truth. Sergeant Shull formally introduced herself as a member of the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Paul just kept talking to show just how smart he was before finally learning the truth. Sergeant Shull formally introduced herself as a member of the Orange County Sheriff's Department and arrested him on November 9th, 2010, 16 years after Linda's murder. Paul Curry's trial began in September of 2014. The prosecution called on several witnesses to prove Paul's guilt. Dr. Neil Benowitz, the nicotine expert who reviewed Linda's autopsy, Leslie Curry, Paul's ex wife who also suspected that Paul was poisoning her, and others, all with details on Paul's suspicious behavior leading up to Linda's death. The defense's argument was honestly ridiculous. They argued that Linda was so fed up with being sick all the time that she started trying any treatment she could find, no matter how unorthodox. They claimed that Linda gave herself an enema filled with nicotine, and that is what killed her, whether treatment or suicide. Do you know what an enema is? An enema is a procedure involving inserting fluid into the rectum in an effort to either empty the bowels or administer a medication. So simple, simpler. It's putting liquid up your booty hole that eventually will come out in a rather explosive fashion. And Linda was supposed to have done this with a toxic nicotine concoction. Testimony was also heard on the insurance fraud Paul committed. Fraud on the life insurance policies, the stolen jewelry claim, and benefits from Linda's employer. On November 14th, 2014, Paul was found guilty of first degree murder with special circumstances from poisoning and for financial gain. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and ordered to pay back the money that he stole. $424,538.75 to Patricia, who was Linda's sister. And that was for the half of Linda's estate that Paul received. Um, Another $116,198.42 to Southern California Edison for benefits that he collected, and that was Linda's employer, and then $9,108 to State Farm for the false claim on the theft of the Rolex watch, the one that had been left to Patricia. Paul did attempt to appeal his conviction in 2017 on the basis that his right to due process was violated. Basically, he was saying that the delay between the murder and his arrest prejudiced the case against him. He listed several pieces of evidence that would have been available if he had been arrested right after the murder, or that would have been allegedly available if he had been arrested right after the murder. Things that would have supposedly contributed some reasonable doubt to his conviction. Some of these items were prescription records that could have showed Linda's zolpidem prescription, uh, testimony of the EMTs that came to the Curry's house the night of Linda's death about seeing zolpidem in the house, uh, and then it, psychiatric records that may have indicated Linda's poor mental health. Ultimately, the appeals court, which included Attorney General, now Vice President Kamala Harris, ruled to uphold Paul's conviction and sentencing because the Zolpidem is not what killed her. The evidence may not have even been available at an earlier court date. What he provided is should haves and could haves, and it was nothing concrete. There was no evidence that the lack of the information swayed the case against him. As of today, Paul is serving his life sentence in Valley State Prison in California. And there he will stay for the rest of his life. So, now let's jump into the science part. So, obviously, here the cause of death was nicotine. Um, there were some other contributing factors, but nicotine was the big one. Um, so, nicotine is found in tobacco. It can be ingested orally, so, like, you know, introduced to your body so you can swallow it. Uh, it can be inhaled or it can be absorbed through the skin. So, like dermal contact. Uh, if you think back to episode three, where Rochelle Lindor was poisoned with a pesticide, um, symptoms of nicotine poisoning are very similar to that, where you have excessive salivation, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, sweating. Like, remember, all of your body secretions are just like turned up. Um, so, a toxic dose of nicotine, like what Linda was given, would quickly cause central nervous system depression, bradycardia, which is like a a slowing of your heart, muscle weakness, and then eventually respiratory failure, where it's like your inability to breathe. Nicotine impacts specific receptors in the body's nervous system. So remember acetylcholine from episode three. That was the neurotransmitter that kind of continues a message from the brain down to the muscles. We're right back here again. Um, so nicotine is a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor agonist. So simpler nicotine can turn on a receptor and then send the message acetylcholine was supposed to be sending. The receptor is kind of like a catcher. The neuron sends out a message. And basically throws out acetylcholine and the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor catches it acetylcholine kind of acts like a key and once it is caught by that receptor it allows the message that the brain was sending to be sent on to the muscles so for nicotine it can also do that that's where the agonist part comes in that nicotine can bind where acetylcholine was and still turn on that message. Um, even if the brain isn't sending a message, nicotines can still jump in there and and cause a message to be sent. Um, it's similar to pesticide toxicity, like from episode three, um, where the end result is an excessive number of messages being sent to the muscles. Um, so it's messages that the brain didn't send and eventually This leads to muscles that are paralyzed and respiratory failure sets in among other things, seizures, loss of consciousness. Treatment for nicotine toxicity is also similar to pesticides. Atropine can be administered to help stop all of those repeat messages that are being sent from the receptors, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Um, It kind of just works against those and can help stop all of that action. Um, Additionally, if the patient presents with seizures, benzodiazepines can be used to help calm those down. Um, Other treatment is really just basic supportive care. So maintaining an airway, um, IV fluids to help replace the volume loss from the diarrhea and the sweating and the vomiting and all of that. Um, So with Linda's case, while There is, there are treatments available that could help treat somebody with toxicity. Linda was given such an incredible dose that, I mean, unless someone was there caring for her immediately after it was administered, it's not a very good chance that she would have survived that level of dose. Um, And Paul, given her history of symptoms and illnesses, obviously had attempted to Poison her several times before um, and was finally successful with an alleged injection behind the ear. So that is this week's story. Um, thank you again for tuning in and for listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review it. Share it with your friends. Um, let them know of all the true crime and the science that you're learning. So I will see you next week. Bye thank you for listening to this week's episode to get in touch with the podcast you can send an email to a dose of true crime at gmail.com find us on instagram at a dose of true crime all one word if you enjoyed the episode please follow rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use see you next week for more tales of toxicity During her stay, the, okay, Linda had told her that the marriage with Paul with, was, was, Linda had, oh my gosh, and arrested him on November, well I wrote November 98th, that's not a date. <sighs>